meditation Swamiji offers us in this lesson is very challenging. So let's just, it's quite different than anything we've done before. This lesson is about facing truth, feeling our unchanging reality within. He starts by saying, what tempts us to wrong action is our fear that if we don't cut corners or try in some way to tip the balance in our favor, then things won't go the way we want them to go and that some consequence we fear will come to us. So he says fear is a major motivator in people's lives and it motivates us to wrong action, not to right action. So he suggests we follow this visualization. First he says to remember, in your true self you are eternal. Nothing can ever touch you at your true center. You are eternal Satchitananda bliss infinite and everlasting. Spend just a brief moment here. Just contemplating that fact. Everything that we are involved in, anxious about, responsible for, is transitory. The only eternal reality is Satchitananda, ever existing. We are eternally living, ever conscious, ever blissful. Our families, our jobs, the property we own, the children we raise, the body we protect, all of it can and will disappear and Satchitananda ever conscious, ever existing ever new bliss will still be there puts everything in a very different perspective now visualize some situation of which we are afraid where we feel fear perhaps we are engaged in some business effort and we're very concerned what will happen if it doesn't work out right? Maybe we fear that some individual who does not wish us well is going to cause us grief, be victorious over us. Maybe we have some secret and we fear that public exposure is imminent. Maybe something we deeply desire to achieve is beyond our reach. We rarely draw our minds to such a negative focus. But Swamiji has asked us to. To step into something that frightens us. 
Now what he says is even worse. Visualize that this thing that we fear has actually happened. There we are, whatever it looks like. See the consequences in your mind. Feel the embarrassment, the shame, the fear. Now, planting ourselves right in the middle of the worst thing that we can imagine, this bad thing that we have imagined, as reality. Go just a little bit deeper. Even in the midst of this imagined difficulty, dig deep into your consciousness to make the inevitable discovery that deep within you are still the same. Lo and behold, calamity has rained upon your head and yet underneath we are sat, jit, ananda, untouched. Imagine also stepping from the midst of that catastrophe, whatever it might be. Imagine that suddenly you are simply transported into the astral world, taken out of the body, the personality, the circumstances. See how that, which seems so enormous and fearful, becomes just a distant memory whereas your true self goes on. Now put yourself back into it. What does it look like from the perspective of coming in and out of the astral world? When we can overcome fear, we overcome one of the greatest obstacles to intuition, concentration, and success. Fear, above all, blocks us from all these things. Repeat after me. Through all of life's changes, I am forever changeless at my true center. In my deepest self. Through all life's changes, I am forever changeless at my true center, my deepest self. Through all life's changes, I am forever changeless at my true center, my deepest self. Om peace. Amen. And there was a woman who um, was a very fear-oriented person, extremely insecure in herself. And she was always coming to Swamiji for counseling. This was in the early years when he was much more able to individually attend to people's needs than he has been in more recent years. And uh, as she herself described it, she always had essentially the same problem and it was just some anxiety. And one day he said to her, 
just for the sake of discussion, he said, let's just imagine that everything you fear has, is going to happen has happened. And it was sort of like just trying to break her out of that thought. Later on when he wrote, um, he said, now, you know, now it's happened. Now the worst has come to you. So what, what fragment of possibility is left to you? Uh, when he, he first taught the Superconscious Living Course, that was one of his guidelines for dealing with fear and guilt and things like that, was to just push yourself farther and farther and farther into it. He was actually talking about guilt and um, self-abnegation. Just push yourself further and further into it until you reach a point where you say, oh, I'm not that bad. <laughs> and then you sort, you know, sort of come out from there. Because a tremendous amount of our energy goes to sort of hold at bay the possibility that certain things might happen. And we, uh, in this lesson, Swamiji is talking about sort of what keeps us from being able to be successful and one of those, interesting, interestingly, is it, it's necessary to be able to concentrate completely on what we're trying to do. And insofar as we're worried about what the result is going to be, it's really impossible to put your mind completely into it because as soon as we start into it, we start playing the same waves out um, of the difficulties. Isn't that true? And, so, you know, it, it, the whole scheme of this lesson, I only when we were really doing those that little exercise now did it really come clear to me what he's working with. Does anyone have any comments or thoughts from that exercise? I mean, um, is there anything to discuss about it? Visualizing the fear. Sharmila? Oh, Ken, would you hand her that? Yeah. Push the button onto green, please. Thank you. Well, I just find that it's, um, it is a very challenging exercise. And I noticed sort of two different parts of myself. There's the part of myself that sort of stands back and observes, oh, yes, you know, I can, I can get through this. And I know somewhere that there is this deep center in me. And then the other part of me says... That ego that says, well, you can't possibly not dramatically experience all of this awful stuff that's happening. And, you know, you wouldn't be a caring person if you didn't have, I mean, if you just said, oh, that's all right, I'm fine, I will get through this, deep center is there. So that I, I find it's almost like having sort of two warring sides. Actually, that's a very interesting point, Sharmila. Swamiji talked about once, and he was dealing with the common cold. He was driving somewhere, maybe coming back across the Golden Gate Bridge or something. That sort of seems to be part of it, but that means it's unimportant. He was driving, and he felt a cold enter his system. And he was very, very busy, and he just did not have time to have a cold. I think it was during the time when he was teaching so much to build Ananda. There just was no space in his life for a cold. And he, with tremendous force, you know, he might have, I don't know whether he said it out loud or just with his willpower, but he just ordered the cold to get out of his system, just out, 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 like that. And he felt it retreat. 
You know, it just was, he drove it out with his willpower. Now, in that context, he, he once also mentioned that part of what happens with delusion, with Satan, with Maya, is not only does it invade our reality, but it persuades us that we have to relate to it. It's a very interesting fact because there's it's two elements. One is that events will happen to us, events that may be difficult or challenging or fear-oriented or bring up lots of what people like to say stuff that we may need, we feel we may feel we need to process. These are words. I, I say it like that because recently Swamiji said to me, so-and-so is always telling me that he has to process a lot of stuff. That's how Swami put it. He sort of said, what do you think he's talking about? <laughs> when you, whenever, it's very interesting because slang or, or trendy words have a certain vibration. And Swamiji is uh, even so classic and orthodox that whenever a slang or trendy words come out of his mouth, that you, you just are suddenly conscious of how odd their vibrations are. And it's not merely that he says it in a questioning way. Once he said, yes, we went to that um, so-and-so, that movie, he said, and then he went like this, it was the pits. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> he thought, I don't think I'll ever use that word again. <laughs> Once he, he, he had a, a soft cotton t-shirt that he used to wear to uh, sleep in. And it had some motto on the front. I don't remember, you know, some affirmative motto. But you saw this enormous, almost limitless consciousness committed to this little motto. You know, and the juxtaposition was it was a perfectly fine motto, but it just looked so odd. You know, many people can wear things like that and they're more or less the same size as what they're wearing. But anyway, processing stuff, which is really the point. Um, that's part of the delusion. And that's really actually a huge part of the delusion is that we're somehow being irresponsible or the other part of is this girl, this was a classic Ananda remark, it's lived through the annals all these years. A a person who had a very short stay at Ananda village remarked that she really didn't enjoy being with Swamiji because when when she was with Swamiji she couldn't remember what her problems were. (laughs) And it seemed like a real serious drawback. Um, she couldn't quite, you know, get over what was happening there. Um, because part of what makes them problems is that we feel that we are compelled to relate to them. Because the ego says to you, after all, dear, this is happening to you. And you really need to relate to this because this is about you, isn't it? And to turn our back on that which is happening to me um, seems irresponsible. After all, how am I ever going to get over it unless I face it and process it? But the way one actually gets over it is one transcends it. One simply raises one's consciousness to the point where what is happening to the ego, to, to quote Master's magnificent phrase, we make the mistake of thinking that everything that happens to us personally concerns us personally. You know, and at first, the ego-oriented mind just tips over. But of course, it happened to me. It must concern me. But that means, but the question there is, who am I? And if I am the wave on the ocean, 
then what happens to the wave is of concern to the wave. If I am the ocean, then what happens to the wave is really of no consequence because it's just going to go up and down and merge back in the end anyway. It's a, it's a huge step on the spiritual path when, when we actually feel free to totally ignore ourselves and, and are doing that out of genuine transcendence. You know, this is an aspect of it that we've talked about sometimes, that if, if we're afraid of something, and then we try to paste a spiritual attitude on it, you know, oh, well, I don't really have to deal with this because, you know, I don't really have to balance my checkbook or pay my taxes, you know, because it's just like it's not important. I'm not really interested in that level of things. I don't really have to, you know, learn to relate to people. And so my third spouse has just left me. You know, what difference does it make anyway, you know? I just live in the infinite. You know, there's a certain unreality to that way of being. But once we have sufficiently persuaded ourselves, and it doesn't have to be an exhaustive study, but just sufficiently persuaded ourselves that we'll deal with whatever has to be dealt with, we're willing to deal with whatever has to be dealt with, then one actually just simply loses interest. It's just not interesting. And, and when, and this is what I was talking about, the cold, you know, when we get sick sometimes, the germ persuades us that we have to relate to it. Oh, I'm sick again. I wonder why I'm sick again. You know, oh dear, I wonder what I, whether I should take these pills or those pills. And gosh, this is happening and it happens to me so often. Why does this happen? And, you know, and just all of those things in which the, the event itself even was just a small thing, but suddenly it's become a way of life. I, I, I was absolutely, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry when I read in the paper, a newspaper, when Prozac was really just coming into use and it was having a, a very positive effect on lifting people out of their depression. And then there was actually this, I think it was a serious article, it didn't appear to be an April Fool's issue, and it said that the psychologists were facing a problem now, which is that people who were taking Prozac and were no longer depressed had to be helped, helped through the grieving process for their former depressed self. <laughs> And I thought, at all costs, let us never get happy. Whatever we do, let's make sure that we never get happy. But you see how the ego can just go endlessly like that. And so it's, um, it's, it's important. I mean, an exercise like this is important also because you really, we really need to persuade ourselves that I just need to live in my deep center. All the waves are just going to take care of themselves. It is not irresponsible to sail through things. And, and even-minded and cheerful is not the same as denial. It isn't at all. It's just a disinterest. Who cares? Who cares, you know, really about all the tiny nuances of me? It's just not interesting. Does that make sense? Very good point, though, because that is how it grabs us. That's why Swamiji, you know, he's just so impersonal. And now, ever since early June when he, when he was brought back from the dead virtually and is um, you know, facing another decade or so of life. He's commented, he said he feels, he feels very different. Um, oh, first, the first part of it was he said he just feels ageless. That's what he keeps saying, I feel ageless. And I, I don't think he just means that he doesn't feel aged in his body. He says, I just feel ageless. He uses the phrase, he says, I just, 
don't identify with myself at all. I mean, now that's the positive side of the exercise we were just doing. To, to, to be there when it happens, but not really identify with it. I mean, we're about to, we were talking earlier, the magnolia tree is going to get picked up and moved to the other side of the wall tomorrow, you know, just a few feet, but enough for it to get um, out of the center of the courtyard and from its point of view, to get out of the shade of the cedar tree and into full bright sun. So as you go out tonight, you should reassure that Magnolia that when they come to get it, it's good news. Okay? <laughs> and that we're taking all this trouble because we love it so much and we know it's going to be fine. But we're going to watch the Magnolia tree, you know, go from place to place. And because we're both sensitive and a little sentimental, we think that the tree is going to have an experience. But it, it never occurs to us to identify with that tree in the sense of lying awake tonight and wonder how it's going to feel to have our roots dug up. Right? We're sympathetic. We, you know, we can extend ourselves into it, but we don't identify with it. It's something that's happening in our world that's relevant. And we feel, you know, concern. But we don't think it's happening to us, do we? Now, what's so amazing to contemplate is that nothing has hap- happened Nothing that happens is happening to us. Just because it's happening to me doesn't mean it concerns me personally. It's not really happening to me because I am Satchitananda. And nothing ever happens to Satchitananda. It's always just the same. Now, this is what Haridas coined a marvelous acronym for. And it was called, he called it Spy Dog. Haridas has this extremely clever way of dealing with things. He called it solving problems in direction of God. And what that means is, instead of taking the small solution, take the big one. And the big one is just jump from whatever mess you're in all the way to the infinite. Because ultimately that's where we're going. Whatever direction we're going, whatever way we manage to overcome a difficulty in our life is always because we have expanded our awareness. Isn't that so? You know, what makes children so extreme in their feelings is that they, they can't impersonalize and they often can't see past the moment. We were just talking about teenagers who have a tremendous capacity to make everything about themselves and a, 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 just a dedicated uh, willingness to imagine that there's no tomorrow. One of my friends who worked for many years with teenagers talked about, uh, and this was one, some of his advice for parents, as he said, what teenagers do in our culture especially, is they use those years to try on all different possibilities. But the thing is that parents watch them try on one personality today and another personality tomorrow and, and, and have some perspective. The teenager, whatever personality they're in, that's the only one they've ever had as far as they're concerned. It's the only one they ever will have. And how dare you imply and not take me seriously even in this moment. Of course, it's a little hard to take them seriously, but he he suggested that you do because that's their reality. Well, um, we ourselves live, you know, all these countless lifetimes. It's so uh, really stunning. I was talking to a friend about reincarnation and he was talking about being with relatives who aren't even slightly interested and he said even when they do consider reincarnation even for just a moment 
He said, it's just like you're going to live three or four times, you know. Don't have any perspective on how many thousands and millions of years we go through this over and over again. Remember I've shared with you once when uh, uh, this woman at Ananda died. She was on her deathbed with cancer, dying extremely bravely. She was having to say goodbye to her husband and her home and her uh, siblings. There was a lot involved. But the very last day, she was just so calm and peaceful. And she said, not to her close people, but to a friend, she said, I see all these faces lying here. She said, I see all these faces going by. And I realized that every one of them was me in some incarnation. She said, so it's just really hard to be concerned (laughs) about what's happening in this one. Isn't that something? When Davy was having um, the the Jyotishan Davy, when Davy was giving birth to um, Kalidasa, to Mark, they call him now, and uh, she was going through the birth process very calmly, relatively, and it was actually she was further more advanced than they realized, and she began to get a little anxious, which I guess sometimes happens in the, a certain transition period. And uh, Jyotish wanted to help calm her down in his way. And he said, Davy, there's no reason to be anxious here. He said, just think about it. You've probably had enough babies to populate the whole city of Sacramento. (laughs) And even at the time, Davy said, she saw Epi's coffee shop, 24-hour coffee shop, and she also saw all these people going in and out of Epi's, you know, in the middle of the night having coffee and fries, and thought of them as all her babies. And it it did, it helped. (laughs) She said, if he had said, you know, something like, Paris or Rishikesh. It was just what he said, Sacramento. The whole thing just got so like, what am I so concerned about? You know, isn't it? I, I contemplated once, I mentioned it a little bit in this uh, visualization here, but I was thinking once that how, how dead you are once you're dead. You know, what I mean is like, you could be you could be President Kennedy getting assassinated. You could be right in the middle of that huge thing. But bam, that's it. You're out of the body. And it's just over. I mean, you're in the astral world. And if, of course, if you're so attached that you're going to haunt, that's one thing. But if you have any capacity to be beyond it, you can be a general on the battlefield. You can be a... a you know, a doctor rushing to an emergency. You can be any number of things. But as soon as you're out of the body, you're out and it's gone. There's no, like, halfway point on that one. But what's so absolutely marvelous about it, you see, is that everything that seems so real suddenly, I'm talking about the perspective of anyone who has any consciousness at all, all of a sudden it just isn't. It just becomes suddenly waves on the ocean. So the obvious question is, why wait? Because what makes life difficult, the the biggest issue, and this is what he's talking about in this lesson, and we haven't gone through it systematically yet, but it's that anxiety that confuses our moral compass. That's what he's talking about here. Here, this is tremendously about our moral compass. This lesson reminds us that Swamiji wrote this course in India in response to the doctor's question, how can I fulfill my responsibilities without doing things that are slightly wrong? Because especially in the 
context of the economic struggle of making your way in that country and the widespread corruption, which is just unbelievable. I went over there once, and admittedly, I was trying to smuggle. When they first, when they first moved to India, like in 2003, in like April of 2004, I was one of the first people to go from America. I traveled alone. This was when you could still do this. I had five 70-pound suitcases, just me, just by myself. You know, I had to get some of those porters to pile them. I had in there a full-size Tempur-Pedic mattress pad. Not a mattress, but a pad. You know, like a four-inch pad, completely rolled up. I had two Bosch speakers. I had three computers. I had a few other things, all of which I was trying to get in without paying any duty on. So, I mean, I was not really completely on the honorable side either, Although, somehow, we never actually consider that a moral value to try to get in without paying duty, so I'm not really quite sure where all this fits in. But Master himself smuggled mangoes into America. Remember that story? Coming across the border from Mexico and in the car reeking of mangoes, just reeking of ripe mangoes, and none of the guards said anything. And Dr. Lewis said later, I don't know how he did it, but I saw a blue light all around the car. Anyway, so I'm coming in with these 70-pound suitcases, you know, after this 24-hour flight. I'm not at my best, and I have a couple of little men pushing these giant suitcases because, of course, I can't push three carts. with. And, and so then uh, I think they x-rayed them. And, you know, you're just looking at all this stuff. <laughs> so I'm standing there with the guy. And, you know, things that can be a little leisurely and slightly disorderly there... So the fact that I'm kind of just leaning against the counter and he's just shuffling paper and talking to this guy and that guy, it took me a really, really long time to figure out he was waiting for me to bribe him. You know, because I didn't, I just thought we were progressing and I just didn't know what was going to happen next. He's asking me the value of this and the value of that. And I'm, I learned at some point that you don't have to be as smart as you actually are. Um, Maya, Davy, and Helmut were going to, I think they did. Swami bought when he was in Carmel this summer in, a, in an art shop. He saw this painting. It's about four feet by three feet. Beautiful painting of a New England forest in, in the autumn with a little country road. Really a lovely painting. Beautifully done. And he thought how nice that would be to put in his house in Pune. You know, because there's never anything that looks anything like that. So he bought it, and then they rolled it up, in, and they rolled it up in this big tube, like about this big and about this long. And everyone just said, "Oh well, Helmut and Maya Devi, this couple for, who live in Assisi, they're coming in October, and they can take it back for you." So everybody agreed that they would take it back. Nobody asked them; they just agreed they would take it back. And of course, then the tube turns out to be huge. And so we're having this discussion with them because we have seen the tube, and they're asking us about the tube and. I assured them that it'll go through the security, which is the main point. You don't have to check it if you can get it through the security. And, uh, and it probably won't fit in the overhead bins. I said, but you don't have to be as smart and as experienced as you are. You don't have to know before you get there. You just have to get there and say, oh, it doesn't fit in the overhead bin. <laughs> you know, like this. <laughs> because, and then somebody will figure out what you should do with it, but you won't have to pay $150, that's all. So anyway, so I'm there, and I'm just saying, oh, golly, all this stuff, how much is it worth? I'm not sure, you know, just playing it out like this. And he's just, 
And then at some point, I'm so dumb also, I find said, oh, do you want some money? <laughs> and I just opened my wallet, and he's just looking at me like, what kind of a nitwit are you? And he says, not like that, not like that. <laughs> then he instructs me, put it inside your passport and hand me your passport. <laughs> so I sort of, you know, chose a number, $200? Yeah, and I put $200 in and he takes it and musses around, gives me my passport and sends me out. <laughs> Afterwards, I really am not sure what I should have done. You know, I mean, probably I should never got myself in such a stupid situation anyway. We came back from uh, on one of our pilgrimages when we had like 30 or 40 people with us. We, we, we went to Nepal during those for, for a few years. We would go out to Nepal and then come back to India for a little break in the middle. Well, this one girl, woman had joined us from Germany and she'd gotten her own visas and she had a single entry of India and we were trying to come back in. She didn't have a visa to come back in because everyone else we knew we had a double. So all of us are on this side and she's on that side and the thing that they do there kind of looking at magazines, you know, just just kind of... Finally, our guard, you know, our guy, the guy says, uh, go to the uh, duty-free shop and red or something like that. This liquor, I'm just completely wide open, just hands it to him. He stamps the visa and the... <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's horrible, and it's terribly amusing at the same time. It's just, what a world. Now, that's the world that Swami wrote this for, where... It's just the way things are done. Somebody was telling me about some Indian official who's absolutely unbribable and he carries his resignation in his pocket. And anytime anybody presses him to do anything at all illegal, he says, you know, I'm going to resign. I'll resign. He just won't do it. But, you know, the, what they have going on in that country, it's like it's not even, um, it's not even illegal Exactly. It's just sort of the way everything runs. Everybody is expected to give a little and get a little and just sort of move the whole thing through. But it's, it's terribly wrong, you know, because everybody's... Uh, nobody's able, as I love the way Swami puts it, to ha- have a straight spine and tell the truth. Just be that kind of upright person. So when he, he's writing this, this lesson into that reality. But of course, it affects all of us in a little way, doesn't it? You know, there's always that, not always, but there can be just that little bit of a desire. The word cut corners is exactly the right word for it, isn't it? You know, just not quite give a situation your all or know that you're not, you know, that if they don't ask, you're not going to tell them. Just... In our country, everything is about rules. They just keep making laws after laws after laws to make everybody be moral. But the real energy we need is that that courage. But why do we do things like that? It's always because we're afraid, isn't it? I mean, just invariably. You see it with little children a lot. You know, whatever they're afraid of. I, Speaking of Davy and her son, when he was about three or four, he walked up to her, to her and he said... Uh, I didn't do nothing. <laughs> Knowing him well, she said, Darling, where did you do nothing? <laughs> In the closet. <laughs> so remember, I, think she, I think that time she went in and he had decided he'd opened all the vitamins and just dumped them out onto the rug. Who knows why? 
you know. But then also there they were, all the pills all mixed up, you know, nobody knew what was what. Where did you do nothing? You know, but the fear comes up. So he starts and he doesn't say, Mommy, I made a mess. He starts by saying, I did nothing, right? Now, why on earth would you say that? Because of the inner anxiety. How many times, you know, when you've been really pressed, have you suddenly not said everything that you'd planned to say or found yourself excusing yourself when you didn't even intend to do so? But if one is completely unafraid, then that temptation just never even arises, does it? What, What reason would you have to make things different than they are. The only reason we do, you're afraid, and he, he lists it, you're afraid you're not going to have the money. You know, you're afraid you're going to get fired or not get the contract. And so, so this um, really deep-seated faith in a transcendent reality and the realization, and this is where, um, this is what this chapter is really called, which is first things first. And the, you know, he talks about the phrase, the bottom line. He starts right in here with slang, about how the bottom line started out meaning money, but you know that slang phrase means now, like what is, where are we going? You know, what is it that we're trying to make happen here? And so because this, as Swamiji says, he, he's trying to give us the opportunity to have two bottom lines. He's not ignoring the fact that this is a course in which we're supposed to be learning how to make money how to have financial success. But he also warns us that, and I, I love the way he puts it, he said money is an inert thing. It, it, in and of itself, it can't give you happiness. David Gamow says that um, you get pleasure from something for 20 minutes. I don't know if that's scientific or not, that, that something new can actually seemingly last 20 minutes. Someone also told me a statistic, I love this one that everyone is 20% more attractive than they think they are. (laughs) I have no idea. I'm extremely curious how that statistic was arrived at. It was presented to me as a fact. I looked in the mirror the other day and thought, what 20% is it? You know? (laughs) And what what would I look like if I were 20% more attractive? (laughs) But uh, it's it's still the, the phrase in there that's so important is that we can only actually gain life and energy from something that has life and energy to give. And, and this is where he says, you know, the bottom line also has to be our level of consciousness. Because our level of consciousness is not inert. That's the actual living reality that we are always in. And so even as we focus on doing that which is materially sound and good business sense. And Swami tells us in this, you know, several of masters, Mr. Oliver Black and Rajasi Janakananda, um, James J. Lynn, were both, you know, two of masters, actually first and second most highly advanced male disciples, and both of them were self-made millionaires. You know, that's a very interesting fact, isn't it? I hadn't really sort of like put my mind right to that. Ramakrishna's uh, most advanced disciple was Vivekananda. He certainly wasn't a, a millionaire. Here, here, Master comes to America. Rajasi and Oliver Black, both business tycoons. There's a real lesson somewhere for us, isn't there? And he talks about Rajasi, who meditated all morning and then went to work in the afternoon. And people said to him, but you have so much to do. And then Swami offers 
uh, us through Rajasi's words, Rajasi said, I can make decisions instantly or in a minute that some other people could take weeks or even months to make. Now, I mean, that's just like an amazing statement, isn't it? I know when someone made the decision, a couple made the decision to get married seemingly very quickly. But Swami's response was, he says, it doesn't take time to make good decisions. It takes energy. Which is a a very interesting point. And of course, energy comes from having all your forces aligned in concentration, which brings us back to what distracts us from being able to do things. But coming back for just a minute to Master's disciples being wealthy. You know, uh, Lahiri Mahashai, this is really a revolution, this path that we're on. I've been, uh, Swami's been writing a, a book about renunciation, and he's talked a little bit about, you know, the changing of the age and so on. And uh, he was talking about how, see, most of what we think about in the spiritual life, especially when we think about renunciation, we think of Catholic religious orders, we think of, of ascetics up in, in caves, we think of all the things that you have to push out of your life in order to have that kind of dedication. And there's a, an intuitive disinclination to go that direction nowadays. You know, one of the reasons we have this Catholic Church is because they're having trouble getting priests. And they couldn't maintain as many parishes as they wanted to, and they had to consolidate their parishes. And if you look around, at least other people have told me this, that a lot of the Catholic priests in this country are coming from other countries. Because you just... Young Americans are just not drawn to that life anymore. They're not drawn to the celibate life, to the strictness of it, to the institutionalism. And the convents are the same. You know, these big convent houses have just elderly nuns, and there's no youthful community. I, I was talking to some nun, or maybe it was she was telling me about someone else. But this poor young girl was trying to be a nun, but there was no community. Because there was just there wasn't you know dozens and dozens and dozens of other young girls coming in they just weren't now the way Swamiji was describing it he was saying that in Kali Yuga where the situation was so dense where matter had such a strong grip and people's consciousness of the world was so materialistic you couldn't really seek God so much as reject the world. That was sort of the way he put it. And so that that path of absolute renunciation, and he mentions, you know, sometimes people would have themselves walled up in little cells, in just a little slit. I mean, like on the outside of a church, or on, of a, they would build these little cells, and somebody would just go into one of those cells, and then they would close it up, and then there would be just enough space to talk, and food would be you know, things could be sent back and forth, but you just spend your whole life inside. You just had to push the world away and extricate yourself from that grip of matter. And then in the absence of all of that, then there might be some hope of being able to see something more subtle. Now what's happening to us as we move into this higher age, which we're really just at the very beginning of, you know, we we tend to see the material things more in a flow. 
we tend to understand it as energy. I mean, not the whole world, but lots of people. I was with my aunt and uncle, and I'll tell you more about that later, but the television was on a lot. That was where I was last week. And uh, it was, they were having all these like Halloween specials on, and a great many of them were about ghosts and people haunting things. But there it was, just program after program. Somebody would fall over dead, and then they would ri- the, the actor, the same actor, would rise up out of the dead body, and then the whole plot would be about the continuation of their consciousness as the same person. And there were a lot of times about whether or not they were going to cross over into the light and then refusing to cross over into the light, and then eventually the light would come in. The, I mean, this is like about as everyday television as you could be, which means that, you know, millions of people are just sitting around with this as their reality. So it, it's just such a change of energy. And where, where matter now no, no longer um, has this ironclad hold on us, then all of a sudden we don't have to see life in such oppositional terms. We don't have to see matter and spirit as absolutely at war with each other and we have to take one or the other. We just are beginning to be able to understand that it's all one flow of energy. So this path, and this is Master's message, he's the avatar for Dwapara Yuga, and Swamiji is articulating what that really means. So you start with, you have Lahiri Mahashaya, who's a married man. And Sri Yukteswar was married. You know, then his wife died and his daughter grew up, so he became a Swami afterwards. But he never shunned that life altogether. Yogananda did, but Sri Yukteswar didn't. And Sri Yukteswar had property and just sort of managed his property. He didn't live at all like these cave-dwelling ascetics. And then Lahiri Mahashaya, who started the whole thing, he just had this little life. And the simple statement is, he wanted us to understand that renunciation is an inner consciousness. And that in the midst, and in that, and that ordinary life and spiritual life are not at war, but now they can be experienced together. So then you have Master come to America, and, these, and two of his most advanced disciples are men not only who had wealth, but who earned it themselves. It's a very interesting fact. You know, that, that their, their whole practice of yoga also, their, their whole consciousness also, was directed toward this um, tremendous energy. You know, at one point, Master wrote a long letter to... Um, Henry Ford, trying to persuade him to get interested in communities. He thought that his, his, uh, nothing ever came of it, but Master sort of picked that man out and thought that maybe he could help him. Isn't that interesting? Now, let's take a little bit of a break, and then we'll come back. In the, in the story of the life of the Buddha, um, which I always think of from The Light of Asia, which is Edwin Arnold's beautiful poetic rendition of his life, um, when, when the Buddha was born, the signs were very dramatic. And the astrologers or the, the dream readers, whoever it would have been at that time, told the king, your son will either be a great king, following in your footsteps, or he will renounce everything. And so Buddha's father, Gautama, Prince Gautama, he was called then, his father determined, of course, because he was a great king, that this boy was going to be a great king. That's what was going to happen. So he conspired to um, 
prevent Buddha Gautama from ever actually perceiving the nature of human life. And they, they, they built this huge, this is the true story about his life, they built this huge pleasure garden, they called it for him, and raised him in such a way that he never actually saw human suffering. And no, and the, no one ever came within that pleasure garden who was ill or old or disfigured, um, so that he always saw everything as beautiful and fresh. And then they, they, he was married to the lovely Yashoda and... Um, and then the way the way Edwin Arnold tells the story, you know, it, it, all the dancing girls were young, and as soon as any wrinkles began to appear on the face, then she would disappear. The flowers were taken out at night, so the flowers never died. I mean, that's the picture that you're given. And finally, he somehow realized that there was a world on the other side of the wall, and he wanted to be taken out to see it. So the king ordered that you know, everything in the town had to be cleared up and every sick and ill and old and poor person had to be put out of sight. But somehow when he's going through the street, he manages to see some old and palsied person. And he's just completely shocked and he says to his friend, what's the matter with that man? And he says, well, that's the fate of all of us. And the Buddha says to his friend, take me home, I've seen enough. And then he, he says to everyone, but if that's our fate, why are we just frittering our time away doing this? If that's really where we're going, why aren't we relating at all times to the inevitability? And, and then he sneaks out with his friend and he really explores old age, disease, and death. And he finds out what mankind is really all about. And then he puts his mind that there must be a way to transcend that, and then he leaves everything. And in Edwin, I'm, I'm picturing Edwin Arnold's poem in my mind when I say all this, which is so exquisitely beautiful. And, and his wife by now has their child in her, in her womb. And he says he must leave before the child is born, because if the child is born, he'll never be able to leave. And then he, he talks about how everyone will say that he didn't love his wife because, look, he walked away from her. And then he responds, Gautama responds, you know, I'm seeking an answer for all of mankind, for souls that I've never met and I'll never know. He said, how much more then am I doing it for the one I love the most? It's so moving. And then they, in the way the poem is written, Three times he tried to leave her, and three times he had to go back before he had the willpower to walk away. This is an exquisite story. Now, all of that has to do with the fact that I go to this place outside of Philadelphia, which is a big retirement community. I mean, it's a huge facility where basically it's condominiums for people of a certain age. And many people are younger than I and very active and they just have apartments and they have all these activities. It's really a community. It's actually quite nice. They all know each other and they're very friendly and they play bridge and they play pool and they have their meals together. I mean, I was looking at all of it. It would be ideal for us. (laughs) But of course, lots and lots of them are old and lots of them are sick and lots of them are felled suddenly by some dread disease. And so they're all just being so perky. And then there's the ones who are staggering like this, my uncle being one of them, my aunt being one of them. And I I just, I find it very stimulating. 
because there you're just looking at it. And I, I've known my uncle my whole life, and he um, still is a very strong-minded man, even though <laughs> it's not serving him as well, because his mind is, his brain is broken, but that hasn't changed his commitment to his brain. It's just made his commitment um, heart-wrenching and utterly confusing for him because he just has the same commitment to his thoughts and his brain and he can sort of tell that something is wrong. You know, because he was a highly educated, very intelligent, articulate man and an engineer and really exact. And so he has all these fragments. You know, everything has to be exactly a certain way because that's what he was like as an engineer. And it's just so obvious that you can't rely on any of these things. You you can use them while you have them, but they're just going to go away. I mean, maybe we'll, you know, die young or suddenly, or my aunt has, her, her mental faculties are absolutely as sharp as they've ever been, and they're very, very impressive, but her body is really worn out, her heart, her lungs, and, you know, and she's, has, you know, she's really bent over, and so she's still completely functioning here, but she's having to drag this, you know, increasingly inert thing with her. Her brain has to drag it from place to place. And I don't know why we would think it would be different for us. You know? Of course it'll be that way for us. But it doesn't, just because it happens, it doesn't mean that it has to happen to us personally. You know, because I'm, I'm sitting there watching my uncle thinking... Now, there's a lot of different ways a person could relate to this because we had uh, Kamala, Kamala uh, Sil- Silva, who was also quite, Kamala's one of Master's dearest and very dear and, you know, highly evolved spiritual soul. And she spent quite a few years at the end of her life, Sarah knew her. Um, and she was um, totally demented from any, uh, her brain didn't work anymore. So she couldn't do brain things. But, but her spirit was so just fine that the mere fact that, you know, she thought her stuffed animals were living animals and she didn't know what city she was in and she thought the view out her window was the Rocky Mountains and you know, just all kinds of completely goofy things, it somehow, it never touched her because she had created a reality that was that was enduring, and the mere fact that her brain was broken just didn't have anything to do with her. Whereas I'm looking at my uncle, who absolutely fiercely believes in nothing, you know, um, and he actually at one point, usually he doesn't go after me directly. Sometimes he just attacks religion in general and God specifically, but he leaves me alone. Um, but he, I was sitting at the table, but I guess he's lost touch. He didn't realize I was sitting there. And he started talking about this horribly stupid thing I'm involved in. <laughs> I'm sitting there literally right next to him. You know, and he's talking as if I wasn't there. It was, it was on the edge of my having to walk away or, or put a piece of bread in his mouth. <laughs> But still, it's like, it, it really deeply causes you to contemplate the difference between the body, the ego, and the self. Which is, I mean, this is all very relevant because that's what our lesson is about, isn't it? 
You know, we, we walked our way. So many people are so afraid of, you know, going into those mental states like that. My father was there in that similar state to it. I used to be afraid of it, but I've watched my father, I watched Kamala, now I'm watching this man. I'm, it doesn't frighten me so much anymore because the Swami said to me when I first heard that Kamala was demented, and I said to Swami, Swamiji, she's lost her mind. And Swami said, Asha, it's just her mind. Just like that, which seemed like it, but it's her mind. And then I met her and I thought, oh, it's just her mind. You know, it's just her mind because she's so self-evidently so much bigger than her mind. I mean, she's really lost her brain. She hasn't lost her mind. It's just the brain doesn't work, so you don't know. But it's, it's really just in every possible way that we can separate ourselves it, that we can live in the infinite and separate ourselves from the tran- transitory, then what do we ever have to be afraid of? Because when the transitory is finished, the infinite is just fine. I mean, nothing can ever touch it. It's Satchitananda. And that's us. Isn't that remarkable? And you see all these older people there and the food in that place is horrible. And the people are just eating and eating and, you know, they're all into the food and they're all into this stuff. And there's a lot of go Philly signs all over the place, you know. It's just like, wow, what an amazing world this is, isn't it? Yeah, so that was my trip. <laughs> Any questions or comments or thoughts of anything else? <laughs> For those who didn't hear it on the tape, Jason has declared me 20% perkier than I think I am. Which I think is the closing line if I've ever heard one.